Good evening. It's Neil Nguyen here from Health Academy. We are back this week for another episode. Thank you for watching. If you are joining us either for the first time or for your second time, so the things we're going to look at tonight, our focus is going to be on is this Swedish approach to COVID or COVID. So just quickly before we do get properly started, we have been working quite heavily on our um, uh, website and our uh, training platform. Ewan um, has been in charge really of sorting out the the blog and the, the the front end side of it so i think ewan's got just a few bits he wanted to say on that yeah i just wanted to say thank you for contri contributors to the blog um obviously in terms of things we've released already particular thanks to jane wilson howarth for her two um blog contributions that we've had published so far and uh also, she doesn't know I'm going to do this, but thanks, Alice, for the blog post that will be published this week that you've written for us, which is uh, fantastic. And um, I really look forward, as I hope everyone else will, to that coming out this week. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Jane's uh, blog has been really interesting to read, and I've ha uh, been very fortunate to have a chance to have read Alice's already. And when I was reading it, all over, I, whenever I was going through it, every sentence, I was like, that's me. That's me. That's what I'm feeling at the moment. So it's a brilliant blog in it. I look forward for it coming out later this week so everyone can else can have a read of it too. And so, of course, I just want to say as well, we're still looking for people to contribute and uh, anything you want to write about, talk about, record yourself, video yourself, um, you know, let us know. You can contact us on the blog itself or on our contact page. Um, get in touch and, um, you know, if we can do it, you can do it. That's all I can say. Indeed. Right. So let's get started then. So Ewan, do you know much about the Swedish approach to COVID? Have you looked into it too much? I am woefully unprepared for this, Neil. So I'm hoping that you are the expert. However, I have been to Sweden twice. So that kind of makes me an expert, I think. Excellent. I think that's a, a really good, important point. So... We are going to get started. So we're just going to do a few facts about Sweden. As I said, I haven't been to Sweden, so I'm not so um, au fait with it. But uh, just as a guide, population-wise, population of Sweden is about 10 million. Okay, so an urban population, they've got 87.9% of the population live in urban areas. So across the major cities, uh, uh, Stockholm is their biggest, uh, most populated city. And their life expectancy, particularly high life expectancy, which is 82 years. And geographically in Europe, it's probably one of the third largest country in Europe geographically um, and landmass. What I found interesting out of some of these figures, and I tried to make some of them very relevant to, 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 to what we're about to discuss, was single person households is the most popular way of living in Sweden. And 1.8 million people live in single person households, which I think that is really relevant to where we're going to come to in a second with discussing this. Another thing that I found very interesting was the amount, the percentage of people that actually work from home, which is 34.7%, which is actually particularly wow. high comparative to a lot of other European countries. A lot of other European countries are much lower than that. In the UK, our sits approximately about 22%. 
of people work from home. So already before before the the pandemic hit, you've got a population here where working from home is pretty much accepted as the norm in some way, in, in in a big way. So how have Sweden gone about doing this then? How have they managed their reaction response to the COVID pandemic? The big controversy around Sweden is around their lack of formal stipulation on things that people shouldn't be doing things. And they've taken a very, what some see as a more relaxed approach, and they've given guidance rather than stipulating. Having said that, they still have taken certain measures. So for example, over 70 year olds have been advised to socially distance. Those that are symptomatic have been advised to stay at home. Bars and restaurants have been allowed to stay open, but they've been advised businesses that they need to take responsibility. Any gatherings of 50 or more people have been banned. Having said that, sports training and games can be played. Just competitions and cup matches have been cancelled. And finally, the one, the last point I've got on here is around secondary schools and universities have been advised not to um, run face-to-face education and try and move to a distance. The important thing there is they've been advised to. They haven't been told to do that. So... Do you feel that's a bit of a different approach to ours, Ewan? I think it's a very different approach to ours. There's been far more dictating what we must be doing. Perhaps that comes down to the type of group of people we are compared to the Swedes. What What do you know about the Swedes when it comes to um, their belief in their own government, Neil, and their willingness to comply with guidelines? So I think it's that's one of the big things that has come up out of this, this discussion is that, that actually this approach by the government in Sweden has been widely approved of and supported by the wider population. And the the government have trusted in their population to follow that guideline, those guidelines, and that they will. And actually, on as a whole, so far, what's been reported is that people are following the guidelines that have been put in place. Now, they're much lesser guidelines, I guess, than what we would have here in this country. The question mark is, is, is it the right approach to take? And I think that there will be a variety of different thoughts on that. We're going to look at a few statistics this evening. And Ewan is going to look at some of these statistics as well and how we challenge them. So a lot of the neighbouring countries, we've got Denmark, Finland and Norway, who are neighbouring countries to Sweden. And they have gone into full lockdown in a similar way to what we have gone into now. And their mortality rates, as a result, have been lower than than Sweden's. And as you can see here, Sweden um, Sweden's mortality rate is much higher than 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 the neighbouring countries. Having said that, the population of Sweden is pretty much approximately about double each of the the populations of of, of Denmark, Finland, and Norway. So let's look at a different way of looking at it. Then let's look at that. These are the the confirmed deaths again and from the day that they had the fifth case is where these these charts started and this these are the journeys each one of them has taken and Sweden is sort of in the middle of there alongside China the states UK Italy are much uh, are much further to the top Germany is a bit higher than Sweden in this so again it's another statistical analysis where you could actually say well actually Sweden's although their mortality rate is relatively high it's actually not doing necessarily any different in the whole grand scheme of things um, than is compared to, say, China, for example. So it's a discussion about whether 
the approach that they're taking is an approach that all countries should be taking? Is it an approach that is working? I'm not really sure. What what if, if, what's your thoughts, Ian? Have you got any other, yeah. other thoughts on it at all? The scientific advisor to the government was mentioning that they possibly will be approaching herd immunity either in Sweden in general or in some parts, perhaps than just in Stockholm. What do you know about that, Neil? Yeah. So Anders Anders Tegnell, and apologies for if I've um, said the name wrong. Anders Tegnell is the chief epidemiologist in Sweden and has been sort of leading the strategy that they've taken. He has very clearly stated that Sweden's approach is not to to go for the herd immunity approach. It's their approach is to limit the impact to allow for the healthcare systems in Sweden to cope with the pandemic. So their their approach is to say we want to keep levels of this disease at a low enough level that our healthcare systems can cope with it and up until this point they have been able to 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 cope with it they've had the same issues as we've had with PPE but the actual ITU beds etc have they've had enough of them to manage the cases that are going on over there what they're saying is their their approach is to do that having said that you mentioned herd immunity and what they have said is as a byproduct of that in certain cities, for example, Stockholm is a good example. I think that they, they they now believe that over a quarter of the population of Stockholm have now had COVID-19. And therefore, they assume, based on immunology, that, that there will be some level of protection um, in, in that population. Yeah. I mean, every country, you know, it's got to make this balance between economic downturn and deaths from COVID because obviously economic downturn along with it brings terrible death and misfortune and social economic um, you know deprivation so ultimately one way or another there are going to be lots of deaths and lots of hardship and it's getting that balance right and obviously Sweden are factoring in that if they keep things going then they can uh, at least protect people against that those other kind of negative effects of economic downturn um of course they're talking about the second wave as well how I suppose maybe sweden might be trying to insulate itself against the the effects of a second wave every country that has gone into lockdown is reducing the spread of, of the disease in the general population therefore once we do eventually come out of lockdown then there is likely to be a second wave within our, our populations now hopefully we won't have it to the same degree as we've had um, so far what Sweden would argue is that actually they shouldn't feel the effects of a second wave in the same way that a country that maybe have gone into lockdown really early on and so they have got very little of the disease circulating in their population. Whereas Sweden, their population could be insulated from that to a certain degree. So it, it's going to be difficult. My, my feeling, my general feeling is, is that Sweden have taken a different approach. And until probably years down the line, we won't know the whether that was the correct position for them to take because there's so many unknowns with this you mentioned the financial so could sweden have insulated themselves from as much economic impact as we have 
could they have insulated themselves from a second wave of the disease? Have they prepared themselves better in that sense? Another interesting stat from them is that 86% of deaths in Sweden from COVID-19 have been in the population over 70 years of age. Now, that is really, really sad um, statistic, but at the same time, have they made that conscious decision? Okay, they've tried to protect them by giving the advice about uh, socially distancing for that age group, but have they accepted that that is a factor? So it's an interesting one. It's an interesting one. But what's your thoughts on the stats then, Ewan? Do you like us comparing all of those stats? Well, of course, there are huge, huge uh, variations of factors that come into play. And uh, in fact, maybe it's time to look at something I prepared earlier um with regards to that yes let's do that then so so i just wanted to have a quick discussion about the issues with making comparisons of countries when it comes to covid cases and deaths firstly many of the comparisons made in the media discuss only total numbers so obviously that's pretty meaningless when some countries like the us for example which has had by far the greatest number of cases and deaths has a whopping population of 330 million people, while some countries, like San Marino, importantly located inside Italy, has a population of 33,000 people. Secondly, small populations always give skewed results because small changes in numbers of infected people make a much bigger difference as a percentage for that country. Imagine, for example, a country with only four people. When one arrives back from a trip with an infection, suddenly 25% of the country are infected. Thirdly, some countries are much more densely populated than others, and some have higher interconnections both within the country and internationally. The UK is often being compared with Ireland, for example, but is much more densely populated and has higher degree of connectivity. Four, the demographics of a country play a huge role when it comes to numbers of deaths with a virus. With COVID-19, for example, those countries with ageing populations such as Japan are going to see a much higher percentage of deaths than many of the low-income countries such as Africa, where there are much younger populations. Although you do have to also factor in how good healthcare systems are in each country, as this has an important impact on death rates as well as surveillance. Five, there's also a huge problem with comparing deaths per confirmed case between countries. For example, Germany is often compared with the UK because it has had many more cases but fewer deaths. But here's the problem with that. Germany has had a much more extensive programme of testing in the community. The UK, up until recently, has only been testing severe cases. Now that means that Germany will have recorded many more mild cases of COVID than in the UK and therefore the number of deaths per confirmed case will be much lower even though the number of deaths per actual case may in fact not be. And of course, we won't actually know that figure because we won't know the actual number of cases. Six, the way countries record deaths is different. The UK's daily figures are only those deaths that take place in hospitals, whilst in France, for example, they publish figures which include deaths outside hospitals too. Also, defining whether a death was caused by COVID or not is different in different countries. 
So all in all, it's not very useful comparing countries when it comes to numbers of cases and death. It's much more useful to look at how a country compares to itself, such as looking at a measurement known as excess mortality, which equals how many more deaths you had in a given time than you expected to have in that same time. You can then look at the overall increase as the rate of excess mortality, and you can also adjust for things like age and gender, so you can then make age-adjusted comparisons of excess mortality between countries, which goes a lot further in indicating whether measures a country is taking are actually having the desired effect. Back to the studio. And thank you, Ewan. And also a little caveat there, we, I think, like many things with COVID, things are out of date very quickly. And I think the UK is now including community deaths in the daily death total stats. Yeah, so I think a lot after a lot of pressure uh, from both the media and from the different bodies that record, I think they have been now asked to include them and they have been started to include them over the past few days, which has seen a significant rise in the, the death rate as such um, over the past few days. Just quickly on that last point that you raised, Ewan, um, the excess mortality. I've got a few little stats together just before this session started. So I just wanted to show what, what we mean by excess mortality, if that is okay. Yeah, so excess mortality is very much, it's about kind of a, a country comparing itself to itself in terms of how many expected deaths it was due to see. And that's why it can be quite useful when you look at expected deaths versus actual deaths. The dotted line is what we would expect to, to have during this period. So in any other normal year, what sort of death rate would we have? And so anything above that line is where we class it as excess mortality. And particularly these graphs help because they show the stuff that is associated directly to COVID-19. So if we look at uh, England and Wales, for example, there you can see from around mid-March, we have a significant uprising in what our expected death rate would be at this time of year compared to, to previous years, really. I don't know what your interpretation of that graph is, Ewan, but if you look at Sweden, I would argue that that's not as steep a rise as in England and Wales. It's not a massive, massive change to what they were expecting to see, what they should have been seeing in terms of their numbers. Um, certainly not compared to to New York City. Look at that as an extreme yeah. example. Um, and not really as steep as that in England and Wales as well. No, Austria has actually got a very, very interesting line in Austria because Austria is, is very, very gradual and it actually has a very, very low red area in it. So compared to what normal years are, then their their death rate has actually been relatively normal for them in Austria. I had a conversation with you earlier today, Ewan. One of the things that is has got to be factored into this is this season of flu that we've just had was probably the mildest flu season we've probably had in over a decade. So our death rate from flu this year yeah. was considerably lower, like in the thousands of lower than what yeah. it would normally be. So when we see those those figures go up for this year in England and Wales, that is on top of already having had one of the mildest flu seasons that we've seen in a long, long time. So it just puts it into perspective how severe this death rate is compared to what we would normally have in the UK. 
one of the things, the comments that did come up last week, Ewan, was around um, COVID testing. It was fairly new then, wasn't it? it? It was one of the things that had been brought in for healthcare workers. So, and last time we had our uh, Facebook Live, no one had really had any experience of it so far. However, yes, unfortunately, uh, over this the past week, that changed. I had a few symptoms last week. Last Monday, I woke up with a few symptoms. And so I registered and went off. And what I did at that time was I quick, um, filmed a video. My plan was, was to film my way through the whole of the service. But unfortunately, it happened so quickly, I couldn't even record it. So I made a little video straight afterwards which I am going to show to you now. And we just have to be clear that, you know, Neil didn't just fake these symptoms just so we could have some testing and we'd have something to talk about on this. So today is Tuesday and um, on Sunday night uh, into Monday, I started to get some cough symptoms, a bit of a sore throat, just a bit run down yesterday. Um, in normal times, I wouldn't have even thought anything of it at all wouldn't have really even probably even taken any medication etc for it but we're not in normal times and considering that I am doing some bank work for the NHS in the emergency department I figured it was appropriate to to use the key worker testing service so I thought I'd just talk through how what my experience of it was as there's a lot in the media about it so logged on last night um, onto the government website and it was pretty straightforward had a few questions to ask and then it gave me the option of which test center i wanted to go to based on where i live it gave me an option of going to salisbury or going to bristol the bristol one was at, um, in the car park of bristol airport so I chose that one and it gave you half hour slots to when to go to it. And they were today. So it was last night, Monday evening, and I got a slot at 11.30 today. Very, very straightforward. Confirmation was received via text and an email. And you get a QR code in that. So you have to take your QR code and your ID with you. So drove, drove to the airport, um, drove straight in, one car ahead of me, so there was no queue for the service at all. Um, and you are asked via messages. So the the team that are there, they don't ask you to open your window at all. Um, and they ask you to basically do a few things to prove who you are, show your phone to the... Uh, screen uh, your windscreen so that you have it there so that they can see it then it's a simple way that they scan and then they send you on to the next stage and at that point then they ask you to open your passenger window and pass through the testing kits and along with the testing kit they give you sort of a very detailed guidelines on what you're then going to do with that testing kit um, so it's all self-testing for, for which for, for me it was anyway they, they, I think there are options if you aren't have comfortable to self-test they also give you a confirmation card as well 
Then you complete the test, you drive on, complete the test in the car park, and then put all the swabs. So you do a um, throat swab, and you do a nasal swab using the same swab. Bag it all up, following the guidelines. Then you put your hazard lights on and they come and collect it um, from you to make sure that everything has been completed correctly and you put it into a bucket so that they can then test it. And the guidance is, is that we'll get our results within 48 hours. As you can see, I'm relatively fairly well, but I still have got quite a mild cough and a bit of a runny nose, so nothing significant at this stage and hopefully it won't progress and hopefully fingers crossed it won't even be the COVID-19 anyway I will update once I have the results and you'll be pleased to know my test result came back negative so I was negative for that interestingly I spoke to one of my friends colleagues who was went to that same testing site the next day and it was a completely different experience, unfortunately. they I was in and out of there within about 15 minutes. They were there for a number of hours. They weren't allowed to self-test, even though they were a registered nurse. They were forced to have to get somebody else to test them. And it was much longer process, should we say. So obviously, I got quite lucky with, with my experience of, of that. So but... when you were there, Neil, were there, there was still a queue going on was there uh when i got there there was only one car in front of me actually so i was very very fortunate so that's one of the reasons i, I planned to take little video clips all the way through but literally i should have been more prepared and have my camera set up but it, it i didn't have time to because they were just moving me on from station to station to station so quickly i didn't have time to to take any video footage whilst i was actually there but um the the actual the technology involved the the booking in that was all relatively straightforward and the staff there were great they were very they'd obviously thought out the the process very well it was just obviously the the days that pre preceded that it got a lot busier than maybe what they were expecting today's session we were going to talk about immunization coverage across the uk and what what people are doing because we know we've got people online that are here to that that, that are in different immunization services uh, a lot of clinics whether they're gps or whether they're private clinics or pharmacies because i know both you and i have been looking at this quite heavily with regards to our our flu training that we're we're we're, we're working on at the moment but also in the the vaccine update that comes out every uh, every month that was a heavy focus in that and it looks at the approaches of that so let's focus next time on the immunization provision that is going on so if we have got any volunteers that might work for an immunization team they might work in a private clinic you might work in a gp sur surgery because it'd be good great to hear some practice nurses because I, I know that there's a lot of practice nurses out there that are still doing uh, childhood immunizations. Um, I think on that note, Ewan, shall we sign off for today and schedule? We'll 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 come back to you with some dates for our next Facebook Live, and what we'll 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 make the key focus of that discussion around immunizations, the services that you're able to deliver, and the way that your services is managing currently. Does that sound like a good plan?
Yeah, it does. Fiona is there is asking, um, considering what's been going on in the last few months in this country, how do you think immunization is going to be received? Ooh, interesting one. There's a lot of um, anti-vax stuff going on around all this, especially amongst the, there's a lot of conspiracy theories, COVID conspiracy theories going on as well. So that's a very good point, Fiona. And um, yeah, perhaps we can talk about that for the next session. I think that's a really good discussion point to have at the next session is how it will be received. Because I think there'll be there'll be two sides to the argument. There will be some that will probably argue that it's going to increase our immunization rate because we're going to be trying to look everyone will be looking to be as protected as possible. And like you say, you and there's that 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 body that will probably be a lot more uh, suspicious of the science community, I guess. Right. Excellent. Thanks for watching, everybody. We hope it was helpful and informative for you. If you've got any questions of us, please feel free to send us a comment and message, and uh, we will see you soon. All right. Thanks very much. Bye now. Bye.